0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with James Mark and Paul Betts about their new book, Socialism Goes Global, The Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the Age of Decolonization, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2022. And this book was a collective effort, the product of multiple authors, including Alena Alamgir, Peter Apor, Eric Burton, Bogdan Jakob, Steffi Marum, and Radina Vucetic, in addition to James Mark and Paul Betts. So, just a little background on Drs. Mark and Betts before we begin. Dr. Mark is a professor of history at the University of Exeter in the UK. He is author of a number of books, including The Unfinished Revolution, Making Sense of the Communist Past in Central Eastern Europe, which was published with Yale University Press in 2010, and co-author of Europe's 1968, Voices of Revolt, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2014. He is also co-author of 1989, A Global History of Eastern Europe, published with Cambridge in 2019, and is co-editor of Alternative Globalizations. Eastern Europe, and the Postcolonial World, which was published with Indiana University Press in 2020. Dr. Betz teaches modern European history at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford and is author of several books, including Within Walls, Private Life in the German Democratic Republic, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2010, and most recently, Ruin and Renewal, Civilizing Europe After the Second World War which was published with Profile Books in the U.K. and Basic Books in the U.S. in 2020. He has also co-edited seven books, including, with Jennifer Evans and Stefan Ludwig Hofmann, The Ethics of Seeing, Photography and 20th Century German History, published with Bergan Books in 2018, and, with Steve Smith, Religion, Science and Communism in Cold War Europe, which was published with Palgrave in 2016. So, Paul and James, can you tell us how you came to write this book?
1: yeah a good question. Um, it was about ten years ago now that this project started, and I think often it's easier in retrospect to kind of understand the context in which one decided um, to write a work. Um, and looking back to the early 2010s, you can see this was a moment where some actors in the region, some political movements were beginning to gradually unmoor the region, if you want to at least their own countries from a supposedly kind of natural, station in the West. Um, so you see figures such as Viktor Orban in Hungary talking about uh, Keleti Nitash, that is an opening up to the East. And you see, even by that point, Vladimir Putin was in the process of, well, rebuilding a Russian anti Western internationalism, um, recreating some of the anti imperialist relationships from a Cold War era. So, for example, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, supported Russia's neo-imperialism in the South Caucasus and then in Ukraine with the invasion of Crimea in 2014. And actually, in we've only seen this accelerate actually over the decade. Um, and now, I mean, Moscow has been mobilizing memories of fraternity from the end of the Soviet, um, um, from the Soviet era, uh, to elicit African support um, for their brutal war on Ukraine. So, this alternative internationalism has kind of come back and it was it, it was there to a degree when we started that project. So in this book, we wanted to explore the different ways in which the region um, had positioned itself globally. Um, and I, I would say for the last 40 years or so, histories of the region have been a little bit inward looking, I mean, for very understandable reasons. So uh, for the reestablishment of national traditions and histories after the end of communism, um, or indeed um, to have the region's contributions or national contributions written into broader European histories. But rather, we wondered how to integrate Eastern Europe in a really meaningful way into the big global story of the 20th century. I mean, that is empires and their end. And end of empire stories are, of course, central to the rise of the region's nation states um, Central Eastern European nation states are formed out of the collapse of the German, Russian, Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian empires, of course. Um, you know, the Nazis then recolonized the region, the Soviets occupied it, it, kicked out in 1989. So the region is full of stories of empire, liberation, recolonization, re-liberation, if you want. But often we don't think enough about how these processes are related to the global story of um, imperialism and its endings. So in different parts of the book, we look at Eastern Europe in this broader global context. So you know, in the first chapter, we, we, we think about how Eastern European nationalists fantasize about getting colonies, a project in which they fail, but why is that important to them? How is it, how is it vital in the sense of becoming Europeans? Um, why did Eastern European... Uh, national movements get states at the end of the 19th century or after the First World War, whether those in the Middle East, Africa and elsewhere did not? What does this tell us about the position of the region in a broader global racial order? And of course, absolutely at the center of this book is state socialism, right? It's called Socialism Goes Global. So we look at the um, internationalization of the region in the era of decolonization after the Second World War as States across Africa and Asia are becoming independent and they're looking to Eastern Europe for support. And Eastern Europe starts making you know, a huge number of linkages across um, cultural, military, um, economic uh, forms, all sorts of ways. So we asked the question, did the region become this meaningful anti-colonial space linked to a broader world within Europe? But indeed, how far also was it shaped by these legacies of European colonial desire um, imperial consumption—you know—had they ever, did they ever really go away um, under um, under socialism? This, of course, has a political edge today, in the sense that today's populists in Eastern Europe, actually rather like their communist forebears, deny this history of entanglement with global empires or with you know European colonialism or colonial desire, and it enables them to make many, for example, anti-migrant. Arguments. We did not practice violent empire outside Europe, so we have no responsibility for questions of postcolonial migration, for instance. And one job of the book is really to show that such assertions are based on ignorance, whether accidental or willful, of a very complex history, including histories of postcolonial migration.
2: Um, and Paul, did you want? Sure.
0: Yeah. First of all, thank you for the invitation to speak about the book. And I should probably begin by saying it was quite an experimental project from the beginning, and I would, and I'm sure James would like to express our gratitude to all the team members for their great input and co-authorship, and above all, uh, to James Mark for overseeing the project so well over the years. Now, initially, we set out to recall the kind of power and presence of Eastern Europe and world affairs with a view to challenging, still dominant views that the eastern half of the continent was basically a glorified Russian barracks protected by walls, barbed wire borders, and coercive immobility. Instead, we wanted to show how Eastern Europe and not just the Soviet Union was directly engaged in the post-45 world in a multiplicity of ways. And that, of course, is not entirely new, as noted in chapter one and origins. And the region drew on relations to the wider world from the interwar years, though the real takeoff period was after 1945 and especially during decolonization. So on one level, we looked to write an alternative history of Cold War Eastern Europe, but to us it was much more uh, than that. And one of the things that we had to grapple with was the fact that the communist world was both expanding and fracturing at the same time in the early Cold War. So on the one hand, the 1949 Chinese revolution and the Cuban revolution a decade later were hailed as dramatic indications that the tides of history we moving toward communism. Um, by 1960, what was called world communism could count 830 million additional members since 1945, including around 260 million citizens from Eastern Europe. Decolonization in African Asia, of course, opened the prospect of a red wind of change as a southward thrust of Eastern European regimes looked to make their mark in a rapidly changing world so but on the other hand the communist world was undergoing a series of ruptures among them the Yugoslav-Soviet split in 1948 and the Sino-Soviet split a little bit after that so what this meant was that the Soviet Union China Yugoslavia and the rest of Eastern Europe competed both against the West and amongst themselves for influence in newly decolonized Africa and Asia and the book tries to describe this interplay of social solidarity and competition um, against the backdrop of decolonization.
2: Yeah, and as a follow-up, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the temporal parameters of socialism going or, I guess, being global. So you mentioned the Cold War, but of course, these engagements began prior to that. So when do we see socialism begin to go global?
1: Well, of course, socialist activists from right from the mid 19th century onwards thought in global terms and Marx's famous slogan, workers of the world unite, I mean, very pithily captures um, the starting premise of this communist project, right? If capital and goods are global, then the workers being exploited to produce them had to unite to go global as well. Um, and of course, to this end, socialists from the late 19th century form their own transnational international organisations. Um At the same time, you see that uh, socialist internationalism has to compete with the rise of the nation state and its appeal. Uh, And by the First World War, um, it's very clear when socialist parties vote to support the war effort of their own nations and not unite with um, the proletariat of both allies and opponents, um, that the nation state form is incredibly powerful. And this tension between nation and internationalism runs through our whole book. And indeed, by the end, is used to explore many of the failures of this internationalist project. But one of the main themes we really wanted to explore um, was the challenge to the rather hierarchical and sometimes Euro- Eurocentric nature of much early socialist internationalism. And indeed, the role of African, Asian and other activists and elites in, well, if you want further internationalizing internationalism in educating Soviets and later Eastern European communists in how to challenge the Eurocentrism of their revolutionary imaginations. So although the book is primarily about the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, it's also trying to decenter this history to show how without African, Asian, Latin American actors, movements, and so on, the history of the region is not complete. So, for example, we explore how African, how Afro-Asian activists had to educate Soviets to take the prospect of world revolution and indeed the idea of racial liberation seriously in the 1920s, or indeed how prominent black thinkers and activists such as Du Bois or George Padmore sought to convince Czechoslovaks, Poles and so on in the late 1930s that faced with Nazi expansionism, they were still part of a colonizable world and had to form solidarities with other parts of the world that suffered from the same condition. Of course, these attempts to educate often had mixed results. And one can look at the many frustrations of anti-colonial activists from the global south with Eastern European socialist elites and their inability or unwillingness to think about questions of dependency, solidarity, or race in sufficient depth. And these these tensions and fractures um, Yeah, I found constantly throughout the book.
0: I mean, I agree with that. And I think, as James mentioned, I mean, the global drama of decolonization in the 1950s and 60s provided a kind of unique opportunity for Eastern Europe to build these new relations with potential partners in Africa, Asia, and Latin America from the 1940s to the 80s, but of course, um, in background to the interwar period. And as we discovered, of course, they did this with great uh, energy and ambition. This was you might want to call the kind of heyday of red globalism. And it was from a distinctly East-South perspective that we tried to approach global history after the war and after empire, one that w- one that typically has left Eastern Europe out in the cold. So a progressive form of anti-imperialist globalization distinct from a Western-centered liberal form was taken seriously across the world as a viable model of internationalism until quite late in the Cold War. And the book tracks uh how these eastern european initiatives were received in the global south as james just mentioned which over time also generated uh their own uh, issues and tensions and for us these case studies also cast some what we think to be new light on how the cold war actually functioned especially in terms of relations forged among small and mid-sized states across continents. Um, Eastern Europeans were keen to present themselves as the other more progressive Europeans, untainted by the stain of slavery and imperialism. And they took pains to highlight their own histories of colonial victimhood at the hands of Habsburg and Nazi empires in the name of an international anti-colonial front, stressing Uh, to their common cause as newly independent and modernizing nations. Um, These relations were fortified in a variety of cooperative projects in military assistance, medicine, humanitarianism, economic relations, and knowledge production of all kinds. And this was, we really try to emphasize this in the book, that this is not simply unidirectional. And many of these initiatives brought many Africans and Asians to Eastern Europe to study, train, consult, teach, and work. Uh, their presence in Eastern Europe was a source of fascination, but also trepidation, pointing up the tensions of Eastern Europe's ambivalent attitude toward multiculturalism, which had important implications for the domestic politics of anti colonial solidarity uh, within Eastern Europe from the 1970s onward.
2: You know, as you're discussing socialist internationalism and this alternative model of development that was promoted by socialist states during the Cold War, it made me think about, you know, maybe some blind spots or some kind of forgotten history that you discuss in chapter one, which is entitled Origins. And James, and uh, you, you authored that that chapter with Steffi Marung, and you, you talk about um, some of the discourses of that. Existed in, in in a number of countries in Eastern Europe during the interwar period, and you mentioned colonial fantasies. Um, this notion that colonization could be a vehicle for escaping peripherality—that um, uh, some Eastern European states thought that they could offer this kind of gentler type of colonialism. So, I guess I'm fascinated by the fact that during the Cold War, you have this sense that you know that that there's this equality between socialist states and uh, the global South. But that during the interwar period, there is this notion that maybe colonization will. Make Eastern Europe more Western, more modern, um, more competitive. Maybe you can talk a little bit about these kind of projects and discourses from the interwar period.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jill. Um, so, as as Paul just said, um, you know, communist states effectively forgot this history. They wanted to present themselves to newly independent states, India from the early fifties or African states from the late fifties, um, as similarly. Having once been colonized um, and now free and so able to um, naturally identify with each other. But of course, this was the this was based on an erasure of this earlier history of colonial aspiration, colonial desire within the region. Of course, you know Eastern Europe um, was that part of Europe which by and large did not have um, extra European colonies. Um, But it did not mean that it wasn't involved in the broader European project of of colonization and of settler colonialism. So, I mean, already by the 1870s, um, uh, Eastern Europeans were starting to go to the Americas in larger and larger numbers. So from Austro-Hungary alone, three and a half million people go. It's often an ambivalent experience. So, for example, those arriving in North America, um, very much like the Irish and indeed um, Southern Europeans, are sort of designated as kind of lesser whites um, uh, and feel um, the discrimination that comes with that. And so that involvement in the, in settler colonialism is often at the margins and often at... Um, in the context of other people's projects but nevertheless um, benefit from it um, from the late 19th century czech and polish nationalists in particular would start to call for the granting of colonies to um, the new nations they were aspiring towards right um, they did this in the context of some people saying that they did not deserve to be nation states so um, during World War One and after, some call for mandates to be used in Eastern Europe, um, rather like in the Middle East or in Africa. These were, um, to use a phrase of Jan Smuts, these were derelict territories that were not fit um, for statehood. Um, and so, actually, these um, these aspirations for colonies were also a declaration um, of the idea that they. Uh, were fit European nations. Often they were not really very realistic claims on territory, but they were rather political fantasies of of immense political utility. You know, we deserve to be real European nations, real European nations have colonies. And they make the point that we are viable nation states, um, who should be bolstered through given through being given territory elsewhere. Um, And through showing that, you know, they were no longer colonizable um, in Europe too. Um, And so across the interwar period, there is um, uh, a push for um, colonies or for collective colonization that Eastern European states should work together with Western European states to create a Euro Africa, for example, um, of collective colonization. Um, And you see a real revival in this fantasy of uh, colonization in the late 30s, again, in response to Mussolini's invasion of Abyssinia. Um, In Poland, you find this in particular, a huge expansion in in colonial studies at university, the foundation of a colonial museum in Lviv, um, and indeed, actually, the League of Nations grants um, a kind of supervisory mandate to Poland in in Liberia. And this is also, I should maybe add as a last point, this is um, this revival of European overseas imperialism and kind of colonial fantasy in Eastern Europe also opens up debates about using immigration to clear out so-called unwanted or unhealthy populations of europe so this is connected to to the expulsion of jews particularly in debates in poland um, and their removal to underpopulated areas which are discussed places like rhodesia angolan angola um, the belgian congo um, and so on so Yeah, there is a complex um, and important history of colonial desire, which is both internationalist fantasy, but also has real effects at home um, as well, and is then something that the communists really um, choose to forget.
2: Right, and this idea of kind of cleansing the population, a form of of social engineering, which you Mm -hmm. typically kind of associate with the, the communist period. I was going to ask about this notion that some experts believed somehow because they had uh, the experience of being colonized themselves that they would treat colonial populations uh, in a more egalitarian manner, in a more respectful manner, and whether or not that assumption somehow affects then how development in modernization is promoted in the Cold War uh, by these socialist states, right? So this paternalistic attitude To what degree does that influence development practices then and shape development practices during the Cold War?
1: Right. So from, I would say, the 1890s, this really takes off this kind of we would be superior colonizers discourse. Um, You find this particularly in reaction to increasing resource uh, resource to violence on the part of Western European colonial projects. I'm thinking of the Polish reactions, for example, to um, the uh, German um, genocides in Southwest Africa, or the violence of the British in the Boer War. And this idea that imperialism has degraded Western Europeans, indeed degraded the name of the white man is a phrase that's often often used. And and so at this point the idea that Eastern Europeans can be superior colonizers, that we are the inheritors of the European Enlightenment on one hand and have developed highly developed cultures of expertise. And we remember for example in the Polish case that large numbers of Poles serve in the German Empire in Um, in Africa, for example. And yet at the same time, we have experience of being subalterns of being of being colonized by other empires, you know, we know what it is to be oppressed. And so this combination of being heirs to expertise, enlightenment, and also suppressed means that we will be superior, um, superior colonizers. So on the surface, of course, um, this type of rhetoric is rejected by um, the communists that um, you know we have left this kind of world behind or we just we just forget about it um, and it's and it's really un, un, unexamined and so of course much socialist development that emerges in the 1950s is in response to wanting a kind of global role into feeling that the form of socialist development can be a superior form and in many ways it's still um, underpinned at least culturally, by a kind of fantasy um, based around kind of imperial longing and nostalgia. And it's rather interesting that if you look in the late 1950s at the point at which these developmental projects are taking off, this is where there's an explosion of um, of, of popular literature, pulp fiction, um, safari travel books, all these sorts of things, um, which kind of celebrate a... Um, or at least have a kind of fascination with um, forms of European, earlier European um, colonial culture. So that might lead one to think that there is this kind of, you know, sort of reproduction of um, colonial fantasy going on under socialism and kind of driving people's, um, desires to you know, play a global role as Europeans and one that's been denied to Eastern Europeans so far because they didn't have empires. But now here is the possibility provided under communism and in the context in which Western European empires
2: are now collapsing. Yeah, and actually that's a good segue to my next question about Chapter 4, which was authored by you, Paul, and uh, Radina. And one of the threads, this relates to one of the threads running through the book, which is the ways in which socialist regimes in Eastern Europe related to peoples in the global south and how that was different from the way in which citizens of the USSR did. so. To be more specific, East Europeans were less patronizing in a way uh, toward individuals from the global south um, and less hierarchical and more reciprocal in kind of how they conceived of these of these relationships. So maybe you can provide an example of this or two of, with respect to some of the cultural initiatives that were promoted.
0: Um, yes. I mean, one thing that we're all quite familiar with is that, you know, the Bolshoi Ballet, of course, was... Um, on the road a great deal in the 1950s and 60s. They performed all over North America and uh, Western, of course, in Eastern Europe. But they also sent a number of uh, dancers, musicians, of course, to North Africa and particularly Cairo. Um, but what was quite interesting in our research is that uh, was that the Bolshoi Ballet never performed anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, this idea that those countries wouldn't or couldn't uh, appreciate this particular emblem or expression of European culture. And I think that the uh, Eastern Europeans had worked to correct, or at least to um, temper these stereotypes and prejudices. They worked very hard to bring a number of dancers, filmmakers, writers uh, to Eastern Europe. And of course, the Soviet Union did that as well. But where the Eastern Europeans often tried to distinguish their work or their activities from the Soviet Union, especially in places like Yugoslavia and the GDR was, in a sense, not to reduce African or Asian culture to traditional indigenous culture. Uh, These countries, again, Yugoslavia, the GDR and Czechoslovakia in particular, worked to bring writers and filmmakers um, who were exponents of modern African and Asian culture, writers, filmmakers, again, this idea that these people would kind of speak for a modern, newly decolonized Africa and Asia. And they felt that that was something that they could do, they could contribute, that would, in a sense, be a language of solidarity uh, that would be, in part, uh, quite different from what they felt to be the blind spots of that Soviet, uh, African or Asian uh, exchange and interface. So that became a place where it wasn't explicitly set up as a criticism, but their activities were such where they wanted to, in a sense, showcase uh, a kind of wider idea of, um, of kind of equality, diversity, one in which the modernity of the exchange was uh, put front and center.
2: And maybe an example of where socialist internationalism as initiated by East European states was, uh, in a sense, more egalitarian than that, instituted by the hegemon, the Soviet Union. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Eastern Europeans viewed the global South and some of the experiences they had with individuals who came from the global South and worked and studied in their countries.
0: I mean, again, that's not always so easy to to discern. I mean, there's certainly wide press coverage, an impressive number of of kind of visitors for that uh, in Eastern Europe toward these exhibitions, uh, um, kind of art events, cultural uh, venues, et cetera. And James is talking about the uh, the kind of popularity of these travel books and these sold actually quite well. There's a kind of ongoing kind of fascination with the kind of exoticism of a world that was very, very unknown. Uh, to people living in this particular region and so the idea of bringing in these um, cultural figures students and then later um, workers was in a sense an effort to kind of visualize or make real uh, these policies of solidarity to kind of engage uh eastern europeans in the world for again for those people who couldn't travel uh to take kind of often pride in their country and kind of marking out their place and the kind of policies of kind of locating their own Uh, people's republic in a much larger international geography of uh, social solidarity. So it's also one in which a lot of these experiences are remembered very, very fondly by these African Asian students that studied or worked uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, Those people who didn't uh, have a very good time, let's say, and, and confronted a good deal of hostility, even racism, had also published uh, their kind of memoirs and writings that became a kind of cottage industry of uh, Cold War commentary, often published in the West as a way of shaming or at least discrediting uh, Eastern Europe by showing, in fact, the what they felt to be the hypocrisy of the limits of socialist um, multiculturalism and solidarity. But a number of people, and I would say the majority of sources that I've seen, um, those people that had actually spent time in Eastern Europe remember the experience very fondly, they go back to their home countries typically. Uh, after, their, um, after their education programs or after their term of work and uh, often becomes a kind of forgotten source of a kind of nostalgia uh, for Eastern European socialism long after these regimes had actually collapsed. So it's one in which we were trying to think very hard about the kind of domestic um, reception uh, not just these peoples coming over, but in terms of the kind of international imagery, because again, for many people in Eastern Europe, their interface with these uh, foreign cultures, is often through kind of media images, uh, uh, newspaper, photography, books, film, uh, popular literature, uh, but a number of people also, when the chance came to see, let's say, a you know dance program from uh, Tanzania or Mali uh these were very very popular venues and there was a huge amount of consumption toward uh the excitement of of um of what they were uh, seeing and I just say this is not uh just one directional it's also one it happened at the popular level I mean the enormous presence power and presence of Latin American music film and television in Eastern Europe over the 1970s and 80s was something that um was very very strong and and surprised me and I can give a kind of personal anecdote, when I was living in West Berlin in 1987, I went to, uh, East Berlin often on kind of day trips, uh, kind of evenings in various clubs. And it was very, very common for, uh, East Berliners, uh, to have devote evenings to tango, tango dancing, uh, that became in a sense a kind of part of the kind of excitement of, of linking up, uh, their, um, popular culture with, uh, kind of life, um, in South America. So these are very, very common across Eastern Europe, this kind of fascination and, uh, and uh, interest in the world far beyond their political borders and one that was, for the most part, remembered quite fondly uh, from both sides.
2: And of course, then you have these Europeans working in various parts of the Global South, right, uh, also involved in cultural and educational exchanges. So this is a multidirectional process, this process of globalizing socialism and then socialism being globalized at home in a way, right? When do we see a waning of these cultural exchanges and interactions?
0: Um, that's a story mostly of the 1970s and 80s, but not everywhere. I mean, places like the GDR and Yugoslavia, these cultural exchanges, interactions continued all the way through. Uh, they were more invested, uh, both kind of ideologically and financially, in maintaining these particular connections. But there's a, it's part of a kind of slow turning away from the global south as a kind of side of exoticism exchange. And s- solidarity. Um, the students continued to come and study in Eastern Europe, and there was increasing attention on labor exchanges, as Elena Alamgir's chapter makes very, very clear. And the dynamic, um, the interregional dynamic, had one in which Eastern Europeans had sent white collar workers to African-Asia. And and for the most part, then, it was students and blue-collar workers that were coming from uh, the global south. I mean, with with some exceptions, but that, in a sense, becomes a kind of a general phenomenon. Uh, And the, the students and the cultural exchanges kind of complicate that picture. And there are many different kinds of exchanges. But the Political, economic, and even military solidarity uh, with what we now call the Global South certainly faded over the 1980s in which these these exchanges were still going forward, but they're often for, in a sense, at times to, to maintain a kind of ritualistic habit, or in a sense, these become much more commercialized. Uh, relations over time so the the exchanges are still happening but they're undergoing very very different forms over the 70s and especially the 1980s I was
1: just going to add to what what Paul said so I mean the, the, there is a real change in tenor of uh, of the relationship particularly of the students and and labor migrants who come um, I mean this the, the student edu- international student education becomes increasingly marketized, right? So a lot of Eastern European states have become indebted to the West over the 70s and 80s of, you know, have um, borrowed cheap petrodollars after the oil crisis to develop, now have to pay these back. And, and one of the sources of hard currency to pay this back is through recruiting larger and num- larger and larger numbers of students. So actually student numbers increase, but um, they're now sources of income. Um Labour migrants, too, come to the region in ever-increasing numbers in the 1980s from Cuba, Vietnam, Mozambique, and so on. But they're treated really differently to those who arrive, particularly students who arrive in the 1960s. So, you know, whereas their former presence in the 60s was celebrated, now they're often kept distant from Eastern European societies. Labour migrants are kept at kind of quiet industrial locations, often outside um, population centres, Um Um, Children from Mozambique who are educated in the GDR are kept in segregated um, institutions um, and so on. Um, Labour migrants who come from Cuba, Vietnam and Mozambique receive um, lower welfare benefits, for example, than um, migrants from surrounding um, European socialist states. So there's all sorts of ways in which the tenor of this relationship between Eastern Europe um, and what is by that point called the global south um, has really, really shifted.
2: Yeah, and thinking about how individuals in the Global South were regarded and treated by East Europeans uh, and East European regimes actually gets me to my next question, which is about rights um, and is the topic and title of Chapter 5. So to what degree are rights, so the rights of peoples in the Global South, instrumentalized for political or ideological purposes by socialist regimes and to what degree did the initiatives and policies of socialist states reflect a genuine commitment to promoting and expanding the rights of people in the global South?
0: We kind of forget now that there was a kind of socialist idea of rights, including human rights, much more comprehensive and expansive, which included the you know, right to education, right to health, the right to work, the right to welfare. And... Many of these ideas, of course, were enshrined in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights in large measure because of the Soviet presence when that particular declaration was negotiated. And from a socialist perspective, it was very much this idea of kind of one that encompassed the individual within the community. So it was not obviously about individual rights versus the state, but the individual within the state. And by the 1950s, it was already a very strong kind of Cold War division of understanding rights where the liberal world was about stressing the rights of the individual, free speech, uh, right of assembly, free conscience in particular. And um, so there's already a very clear kind of division in terms of kind of what counted or what was understood as human rights along Cold War lines. But as you say, many of these civil rights that were enshrined in these Eastern European constitutions were not respected. Uh, A number of newly decolonized African countries used uh, some of these Eastern European constitutions as templates. That, uh, in a sense, were respected, at least uh, on paper in principle. But many of these particular issues of kind of uh, social and economic rights were ones that were defined almost in the breach. And what I found interesting is that over the course of the 1960s, you know, the rights that, that worked to kind of bridge East South relations were much more about the language of anti imperialism and anti racism. Uh, So a number of those, let's say, uh, more domestic, domestically oriented sets of social economic rights was one in which it was seen as an affront to national sovereignty. There's no kind of checking or verifiable mechanism. And those were things that uh, were not, in a sense, shared values in the same ways, much more the idea of kind of... um, Uh, uh, linking an idea of kind of socialist rights to the language of anti-imperialism and anti-racism with the idea of a kind of protection of national sovereignty. So that way, um, issues of kind of race and self-determination trumped ideas of class and international solidarity. So you look at a a range of places where that's taking place, for example, at the United Nations and their general assemblies. It was those... Uh, The kind of pivot points of anti-imperialism, anti-racism, self-determination that became the kind of uh, places where the second and third world representatives could then form a kind of united front uh, against the West. So in a sense, it's a kind of very selective, partial idea of rights that were used to advance uh, broader uh, ideas of foreign policy and international politics.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd like to actually continue with the discussion of rights, because you mentioned that feminists, uh, East European feminists, were quite prominent, vocal in terms of promoting rights in the global south. So what were their contributions?
0: Well, I mean, it's also kind of forgotten that the equality of the sexes was seen as a key socialist right and one that they often foregrounded as, in a sense, distinctive as opposed to the West, And so an organization like the Women's International Democratic Federation, the so-called WIDF, played a very, very important role in the kind of 1940s and in in a sense doing a lot of this work. I mean, the organization was founded in Paris in 1945 with very, very strong links to the Soviet Union with the task of raising awareness of women's issues internationally. So it was often linking issues of gender, uh, race, and anti-colonialism. They had you national chapters in 40 countries in the 1940s. And by the late 1950s, the um, WIDF had chapters in 70 countries and they had a kind of UN consultative status. So they're in a sense of kind of building, um, the, the building coalitions across continents. They soon fell foul of, of, of kind of Cold War politics in which they wrote this controversial report about U.S. troops and their uh, actions, uh, what they accused them of war crimes in the Korean War, especially about biological warfare. And with that, they lost their consultative status at the U.N. and were only readmitted in 1967. So in a sense, that became an important. Loss of of a, a kind of key agency that was stitching together uh, the second and the third world around issues of women's uh, of women's rights. So it was one in which it was already to the point was not being uh, noted or respected in these new constitutions in Africa and Asia. In a sense, the, the kind of key spearhead group then had kind of uh, in a sense uh, disappeared or were kind of driven to the margins. Um, so what happened is they in a sense going kind of win back their, uh, their place. They're back in and the UN, again, as consultative status in the 1970s, and they helped shape the UN agenda for uh, kind of women's issues at the time and help uh, design the International Women's Year at the UN in 1975. So in the 1940s, you have a number of socialist feminists that are working very, very hard internationally to kind of build uh, bridges across continents. They, in a sense, uh, for uh, various political reasons, they kind of drop from view and those kind of feminist issues uh, are no longer seen as a kind of um, bridge ideology between um, Eastern Europe Asia, Africa, Latin America, but it does come back uh, in the early 1970s, and this idea of blending or reblending, uh, kind of feminism, socialism, and uh, anti-racism, and progressive politics, works its way on the UN agenda and helps kind of drive through uh, a range of policy issues in very high-profile conferences over the course of the 1970s and 80s. So, you know, the Women's International Democratic Federation plays a kind of role as kind of vanishing mediator uh, the 1940s in terms of building some of these links and then dips from you and then comes back. And so in a sense, the chapter is partly to kind of restore their particularly powerful political voice and place. In this broader idea of, of rights discussion, which is often seen as a kind of narrowing around uh, defense of the individual liberalization, et cetera, in the 1970s. But it was still a very, very wide open game in the 1950s and 60s. But with time, again, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism and self-determination become the kind of hallmark ideas of what a human and civil rights mean uh, in the socialist world at the time.
2: So we've already talked a bit about race, but I wanted to continue this discussion because you actually have an entire chapter devoted to it entitled Race. And this chapter begins with a quote by Yugoslav traveler uh, Nikola Vitorovich, who visited the Congo in 1961, and he asserted, I wanted to prove to them there are different white people. And so I found this a fascinating quote because we've been talking a lot about paternalistic attitudes and fetishizing the global South. But what did he mean by this, and how does this statement how is it related to larger efforts to challenge these racial hierarchies and and, and genuinely create solidarity?
1: Yeah, so the the question of race and solidarity um, was absolutely central for us in trying to understand both the linkages, but also the fractures in the relationship between Eastern Europe and the decolonizing world in Africa and Asia. Socialist states in Eastern Europe on the whole did not really want to think about race. And indeed, since the early 1930s, the the Soviets have tried to sideline race as an issue always subordinate to class. Um, And certainly after World War II, as communism comes to many countries in Eastern Europe, their elites are always proclaiming that racism is elsewhere, that racism cannot be reproduced um, other than in capitalist imperialist systems. So their propaganda always focuses on racism in in the United States, in apartheid South Africa, and so on. And indeed, that motivates socialist states um, in the 1960s to get involved with an awful lot of anti-racist work um, at international organisations, particularly the United Nations. But at the same time, um, and we pick up these voices in the book, across the global south, there are many who see Eastern Europeans as another form of white imperialists. Um, And this actually we often see mobilised in propaganda um, against the communist bloc. So, after Beijing breaks with Moscow in the early 1960s, it implies an awful lot of racialized propaganda worldwide to prove that Russians, Eastern Europeans, are just white Europeans, will always be the inheritors of um, racist traditions, and as such cannot lead a global progressive movement. Of course, that's very much um, uh, what Beijing is using to build its own alliances. So we kind of asked the question in the book, you know, which is right? Should we Emphasize the continued legacies of European imperialist racialized thinking and conclude that Eastern European socialists hadn't escaped that, still often produced racial hierarchy, albeit in the name of solidarity, or actually had these ideas began to be overcome to some extent. And that quote you gave really gets to the heart of some of those tensions, I think. I mean, there were. Very many real progressive commitments, which I'm not denying here, but they're also informed by a kind of white saviorism, which is also derived from imperial practices, aesthetics, fantasies, and these, in many ways, allow Eastern Europeans a kind of fantasy of escape from being defined as lesser Europeans. They're now bestriding the world stage in a way that Western Europeans once, well, once and still, still did. So. One thing we wanted to do was chart how these imperial aesthetics, fantasies were entwined with anti-colonial activism. So for example, um, at the moment that decolonization really accelerates after the Second World War, you also find an explosion of publishing around imperial adventure stories, for example, communists like dressing up in safari gear and going hunting um, when they go um, to Africa. So, you know, real progressive commitments, but often um, framed by, I almost say motivated by, a set of um, images, aesthetics derived from an earlier colonial pro- um, project um, from which they had formerly been excluded, but anti colonialism allowed them, as it were, to make up for. But just because states are committing internationally to this anti racist work doesn't mean that the kind of categories of race have fallen away, right? So when Vitorovich talks about um, being a better white man, he's tapping into a number of ideas about race. Centrally, um, socialist states after the Second World War take the so-called um, family um, family of man idea that's very popular um, through UNESCO, other UN institutions that promotes the idea that there are um, three races in the world, the so-called Caucasian, Negroid and oriental races. So races are still essentialized as something very, very real but in the communist iteration of this, these are, um, three races bound inequality, so if you look at communist iconography after the second World War, you often find you know these three figures holding hands in posters. But actually, if you look carefully at these posters, often you find that the kind of, often the white socialist European man is kind of one step ahead, leading the other two figures to a glorious socialist future. So there's a kind of socialist paternalism that lies um behind this. Of course, behind this idea that you know we might be better white men is also the claim that um, we were always oppressed. So there's also this, uh, as I've said before, this erasure of histories of colonial desire. There's also often the often the assertion that under socialism, racism is structurally irreproducible. Um, Racism is always elsewhere. It gets reproduced under capitalist imperialism. Under um, in South Africa or um, or the United States, um, so you know we can represent a better type of um, of, of whiteness than um, than Westerners can. Of course, this is often critiqued by um, those who come to study or to work in the region. Um, I was very struck by the testimony, particularly of African students who come to Hungary, to Yugoslavia, and other places. And they complain about incidents of, of racism that they suffer. And they always get told by authorities, you know, this is just, you know, an individual incident. This is just individual deviance. This isn't something that can be um, made part of the structure or um, we can accuse socialist systems of, um, of, of, of reproducing themselves. So um, despite an awful lot of criticism, they maintain this position Um, that they are superior.
2: So I'd like to move on to Chapter 8 now, which you authored, James, with Alena Alamgir. And this chapter is entitled Mobilities. Um, And here you examine the porousness of Eastern Europe's borders during the Cold War. And of course, in part, your aim is to continue to challenge this notion that individuals were shuttered behind this iron curtain. And you do so through the lens uh, of global contacts, global relationships. So I'm wondering what the global dimension adds to this perspective. So how does examining mobility through a global lens enable us to appreciate the porousness of Eastern Europe's borders and, um, and also the people that came to Eastern Europe, right, to study and to work? And um, maybe you can tell us also a little bit about why people were on the move.
1: So one thing we really wanted to explore was that immobility, you know, the idea of fences, walls, the very kind of common images that are associated in the popular mind with communism, were very much only part of the story, that there were many forms of mobility, exchange, that this um, opening up between the second and third worlds enabled. So, you know, we deal with lots of these stories in the book um, from the North Korean orphans um, who come um, who come to Eastern Europe, Soviet Union and China in the 1950s and, um, you know, are educated for years to the hundreds of thousands of African and other international students who come to study in the bloc and in Yugoslavia from the 1960s. And then to the story of late... Um, socialist labour migration in the 1980s. So, you know, the large numbers of um, Vietnamese, Cubans and so on who come to work across the block and the presence of whom, Vietnamese in particular, you can still see um, in the region today. So this was important for us, I think, to tell these stories for a number of reasons. Um, I think, firstly, to challenge this very simplistic story of immobility before the end of communism and then mobility after it. Um, There's often a very Eurocentric account and certainly many of the stories that we explore um, in the book reflect on the openings, the possibilities for for mobility during the Cold War and the way in which so-called fortress Europe has become much more um, cut off since then. We also wanted to explore, I think, how the region was part of a pan-European story of post-colonial migration. This was not just something that affected the West, and of course, this has political implications in the present, as as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. You know, populists now in the region claim, you know, we don't need to take any migrants like Western Europe, as we never had any history of empire or or, or experience of post colonial migration, and this is kind of simply not the case. We we also, I think, wanted to explore the very kind of different nature of socialist mobility. I mean, liberal capitalist mobility is. It, is seen very much as the choice of the individual to come and work for their betterment elsewhere. Socialist mobility is quite different. It's part of a collective idea of development. So students, labor migrants, who would come as part of collective schemes, these were not individual choices. These were negotiated by states. And usually the sending state would hope for education for those individuals, that the time of migration would be limited, and that that migrant or student would return to develop their home country. So it's very much a collective scheme, not an individualized one. Uh,
2: can can to I add something to that quickly? Oh, sure. Certainly. Yeah. Um,
0: I think that's right. But I mean... The demographics of a number of the students who went to study in Eastern Europe and the later the kind of industrial workers are not always the same. I mean, there are a number of, uh, let's say, the sons and daughters of, uh, of politicians, for example, were sent to the GDR in Poland, often came from uh, actually middle-class backgrounds. They arrived with um, new clothes, often had access to Western currency, sometimes even automobiles. And that be- I only say this because that also at times became a source of resentment on the part of kind of local Eastern European groups in terms of uh, uh, putting the kind of language or at least the practice of solidarity in a different light. They seem to be kind of privileged people that were, you know, uh, the schools are built for them, housing the rest. So it times and we've certainly seen a number of cases it did uh, it did foster a certain amount of resentment even racism against these particular groups so it's the, the students that arrive and the later the industrial workers are not necessarily from the same social class um, it's also one in which as James is saying about the kind of reluctance on the part of these Eastern European governments to to take part in these schemes um, there was also a kind of uh, one in which these Students in particular, and also these workers are often housed, uh, as James said very early, and outside of population centers, often among themselves with a very uneasy relationship to the local Eastern European people living there. So it was still one in which there was um, a certain nervousness, a certain anxiety about 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 um, intercultural integration uh, that was still very, very strong and kind of marked out um, some of these um, these cultural collisions uh, built around the idea of mobility. And again, many of these stories went quite well. Many of these people, these students, these workers, look back very, very fondly on their experience being trained as scientists, uh, technicians, engineers, doctors, etc. But uh, certainly the case, too, the number of them encountered a range of, of problems, hostility, even racism. So it was one in which we had to kind of dig deep in terms of trying to get a sense of, you know, the the kind of the literature, the memoirs, the diaries, the kind of people that were writing about those experiences. But it's one in which, as the chapter is make, making clear, that it's a much broader global history of mobility, but it's also one in which it's connecting areas of the world that uh, historically have very, very little contact with each other. So you really, it's, you can study these kind of cultural clashes right there on the spot. And it was one in which um, some of these programs functioned very, very well, but others ran into problems around the difficulties of, uh, of doing this, both from an economic and a cultural perspective.
2: Uh, One of the aspects of your book that I find so engaging and fruitful is that these broader categories such as socialist internationalism, you interrogate them and you highlight the complexities and the contradictions associated with them. So if we think of mobility and socialist internationalism, what you've just pointed out about uh, the fact that people were physically marginalized, right, this underscores the fact that there was this kind of undertone of racism or this othering happening all the while you would see in the discourses, the official discourses of that state, that here we are supporting our, our brothers and sisters from these countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, th- I think this is one of the really important uh, aspects of the book that it interrogates these these categories and what these entailed. And kind of on that, I wanted to also note that what I also appreciate about this book is it doesn't just look at socialist states in Eastern Europe, right? And it also doesn't just look at the Soviet Union. It also incorporates other socialist states engaged in this process, right, of socialist internationalism, of promoting mobility. So you look at Cuba and China as well. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about what types of mobilities uh, these two countries engaged in, just to bring them into the discussion.
1: Yes, although the book focuses very much on Eastern Europe, we wanted to explore history of socialist internationalism in a much broader context. So one of our stories is clearly solidarity, which I've talked a lot about, but it's also a story there of competition and conflict. Um, So China is very much part of that story and is threaded through the book. So in fact, we start early on exploring the way in which this fascination with China developed long before um, communist takeovers in Eastern Europe or communist um, revolution in China itself and actually from the late 1930s there's this awareness of a similarity between the threat of Nazi and Italian imperialism in Eastern Europe um, and Japanese imperialism in China and this um, gives rise to a whole range of kind of um, cultural political identifications well before communism comes after the Second World War to Eastern Europe. The Chinese revolution is of course then immensely important Um, for communists in Eastern Europe, it shows that communism can spread without the role of the Red Army. Um, And across the 1950s, you have a huge number of exchanges. I mean, um, the first five-year plan in China, something like a third of projects involve Soviet or Eastern European experts. You have all sorts of museum exchanges, film exchanges, um, Chinese clubs spring up, for example, in large numbers in Poland. Um, So all these sorts of exchange. And then the split between Beijing and Moscow in the early 1960s, of course, puts an end to a lot of that. As I said earlier, you have this anti-Soviet, anti-Eastern Europe, often racialized um, propaganda coming out of um, Beijing. Um, You also, of course, have have amongst student movements in the region, um, the emergence of small Maoist groups as well. You start to critique their own um, states, supposedly bourgeois um, or conservative, the conservative turn um, in socialism in the region. Um, You then have a really interesting story towards the end of the Cold War where um, the Chinese looking to reform post-Mao start looking to market socialist experiments in Eastern Europe. Um, for inspiration. Eventually they give up and turn rather to Japan and other countries for inspiration. And actually this is an important moment in which um, Eastern European countries stop being the kind of exporters of developmentalist ideas and actually start looking, or some of their economists start looking to East Asia for questions of how to catch up to the West, how to integrate into global economies. Although actually it's not really China at that point. China, The Chinese takeoff is not yet sufficiently visible. Um, it's mainly the East Asian tigers that are of, of, of great interest. Um, you also ask about Cuba. And of course, I mean, the Cuban revolution of the late 50s is, is again, incredibly important. Again, it shows that communism is, is still absolutely alive. It's expanding. It doesn't need the Red Army. Um, and it really embeds itself so deeply within Um, communist um, cultures. So, I mean, for example, the Red Army Choir learns to sing um, in Spanish and you have this kind of um, this really striking promotion of Che Guevara and Castro as two kind of, you know, almost sort of sexualized pop star type characters within the communist press um, across the region. Um, but it also always remains a very ambiguous relationship. I mean, um, Che Guevara, when he first comes and visits the Eastern Bloc, he comes as the head of the Cuban National Bank um, and so often complains that Eastern Europeans don't really understand what anti-colonial solidarity means. They have to be educated in anti-colonial economics. They are miserly in their um, solidarity. Um and then when you have this kind of, if you want, market socialist shift in a lot of countries, you know, in, in Hungary, Yugoslavia, and so on, Poland, um, in the 1970s, um, they increasingly come to see Cuba as a kind of very outdated, overly statist, romantic, militarized form of socialism that they're moving away from. Um, to, towards the end of the book, we, I mean, we finish with a really tragic story of um, of Cuban women who come to work um, in particular in, in Hungary's textile industry in the 1980s, um, necessary for an ailing economy, labour is needed. And what's very striking is the way in which they're treated. They're not given the same welfare rights, for example, as labour migrants from surrounding Eastern European states are. Um, unlike the students of the 60s, they're hidden from home populations. Socialist internationalism is seen as increasingly embarrassing. And then in 1980, 19- nineteen eighty eight they are um they become victims of racist uh, skinhead violence and then partly in reaction to that they're sent home um in in nineteen eighty nine. Um so it's a very kind of um it's, it's 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 a very complex story um and that particular relationship really illustrates some of the profound changes in um in the nature of socialist internationalism across the Cold War.
2: And also just, uh, you know, a tragic ending to socialist internationalism. This kind of gets me to one of my questions about East Europeans' understanding of globalization. How did East Europeans feel about their state's role in this process? And, you know, maybe also talking about some grassroots expressions of, so positive aspects of this socialist solidarity. So you've pointed to a negative one, but where we see this happening on the grassroots level.
0: Um, I can give one example from East Germany, which I found quite interesting, is that, of course, when the regime collapsed in 1989, there were thousands of uh, students and workers from uh, Africa and Asia living in the GDR at the time. And the question is actually what to do with them in the middle of their study programs or in their kind of um, their work um, arrangements. And it was decided then by... Uh, Helmut Kohl and the, and the West German government in 1990, that they would essentially just pack these people up and send them back to uh, Namibia and Mozambique and elsewhere. Uh, but what I found quite interesting is something I've discovered quite recently after the book was published is that the enormous a number of East German citizens actually wrote letters uh, expressing their dismay and horror or what they felt the, the Bonn West German government uh, was doing in terms of treating these people that they actually did see. As in a sense part of their country, as in a sense, uh, you know, exponents of a certain idea of uh, social solidarity, so badly, and uh, in a sense, we're protesting against what they feel to be the unjust and tried, callous and cold uh, reaction of the of the newly reunified German government toward uh, these um, students and workers that had been uh, encouraged and sponsored then by East Germany at the time. So you do get moments of this kind of grassroots support in a sense kind of after the fact. But by the time you look at uh, someone like Johnny Pitts's book, Afro, you know, Afropean, this idea that uh, when he goes to Moscow, uh, he's already one in which he can feel that kind of um, that rough sense of, uh, of hostility and racism toward him. And he's kind of reflecting back that how different that would have been most likely had he traveled to Moscow, let's say 30 years before that are already in a kind of post-Soviet age that he felt that uh, it was a very good chance that the kind of uh, the race and hostility would be more accentuated than it would have been earlier. And again, it's one particular account, and he was basing his views on a set of travel accounts that he'd read from African-Americans and uh, and others, but it was one in which it kind of spoke to what he felt to be uh, a lack of progress uh, after 1991, and actually one in which that that older idea of solidarity had hollowed out, had been forgotten, and may have actually been uh, better than what he felt to be a Russian present in the uh, in the early 20th century, 21st century. Sorry.
2: So a reversal, essentially. And James, you this is something you follow in your 1989 book. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the legacies of this whole process of socialism going global. So what happens in the post-socialist period? What happens to these relationships, this commitment to these states in the global south?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 easy perhaps to see this as a kind of dead history, um, a form of alternative globalization, which whilst historically really interesting, is is somehow no longer with us. Um I think the first thing to say is it was incredibly powerful in its day. I mean, we should remember that the socialist world, at the height of its expansion around 1980, encompassed roughly one third of the world's population. Um, And indeed, of course, many, many of those actually, because of China, still remain um, as part of nominally socialist or communist um, states. Um, But one thing we want to look at is, you know, because because of our story of internationalism, also understand... Nineteen eighty nine and the end of communism, not just as an opening up, as the beginnings of globalization for the region, um, the way in which it's often framed, but rather about a choice of internationalism and actually, in some ways, a deglobalization. So we explore the whole variety of global projects that are still going on in the late nineteen eighties, and suddenly th- these are put um, um, uh, these are put to bed. Um, these can no longer survive in the early um, in the early nineteen nineties, and of course the region slowly reorientates to a European um, space. What's striking, I think, is the ways in which these forms of socialist internationalism have come back, albeit in very different ideological guises, in the last decade or so, particularly with advent of populist movements and populist governments um, in the region. And indeed, after the global financial crisis, um, after which some of these governments started to look to alternative relationships to complement their Western ones um, across the world. Um, and indeed, sometimes you see forms of sort of nostalgia, if you want for socialist internationalism, informing some of these relationships. So um, one here, to point out what might be the Chinese 17 plus one policy. This is 17 Eastern European countries and the one um, is China. Um, and the ways in which um, that has tried to mobilize these memories of connection from the Cold War, particularly on the Chinese side. Um, I noted during the COVID pandemic that um, Chinese medical professionals who um, came to Serbia um, as part of you know, uh, medical, medical teams would ritually visit um, Tito's grave um, to remember these kind of earlier forms of solidarity. Um, but most commonly, I think these forms of interconnection, um, even when they're being revived, are really drained of this earlier socialist content. So you've seen in particular the ways in which Moscow has tried to instrumentalize this memory of this era of decolonization, of anti-colonial solidarity, of support for African independence, as it tries to build an anti-Western coalition over the last decade. And particularly you saw that work really accelerating after the invasion of Crimea, and indeed today with the ongoing brutal war in Ukraine, and the ways in which appeals to this past are made in order to... um, uh, in order to justify a broader anti-Western position, anti-NATO position, and so on. Um, just as one example of this, in, in 2018, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov travels to Luanda to unveil a statue um, to Soviet Namibian Cuban fighters who fought Frangolin um, independence. So again, these histories are coming back. Um, they're being used in all sorts of memory work um, to Um, underpin a new anti-Western alliance, which Russia seeks to lead. But as I said, it doesn't really have very much connection to socialist ideology anymore. Do you want to take the question up, Paul?
0: Yes, I agree with that. I mean, one indication of those shifts, and again, it's happening, I think, from mid-70s onwards, you know, Gorbachev's idea of the common European home, which is, you know, seen as an important moment of 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 warming East-West relations. But people then, number of uh, African observers understood that as in a sense one in which uh, Eastern European, um, the gaze of Eastern Europeans was shifting from the global South to the West as kind of marking a sea change in which that kind of East-South uh, relationship, uh, economic, military, political, cultural, was in a sense one in which it's no longer seen as a key priority uh, for Eastern Europe. And again, that's different for some countries like the GDR and Yugoslavia, which maintained these uh, much, much longer. But it was already an indication that there was a, a kind of n- a new uh, interest in kind of East-West relationships at, at the expense of these older moments. I think one of the things that we try to do in the book is is to show not only the enormous amount of political, military, economic, and cultural traffic between Eastern Europe and the Global South, but that it very well could be that Eastern Europe was even more international uh, during the Cold War than it was afterwards. And we certainly see, at least in the in the realm of history writing uh, in the 1990s, a much more story about kind of a reassertion of national sovereignty, about self-determination, and a renationalization of historical narrative. So I found it a little interesting and slightly ironic that it it was a kind of team of historians, a number of foreigners, especially from a younger generation that are really in a sense, engaged with recovering uh, this enormous story of kind of socialist internationalism because a number of people, including professional historians, Uh, have either ignored or turned their back on the story because it it doesn't really um, fit with a number of present political narratives. So that was, a I always found kind of interesting that we're in a sense trying to recover uh, a very, very important moment of not just Cold War history, but global history, but as one in which it seemed that this was more possible uh outside um of some of these countries and also uh showcase the work of a lot of really really talented young researchers that were kind of opening up these questions in very very new ways so it was one in which it's you know the legacy is there and i think a number of young people have actually worked very hard to kind of fill in some of the things that we try to um, just kind of lay out but it does kind of raise a range of different questions about how we understand history of europe european non-european relations how we understand the history of the Cold War and what we mean by global history. Because in most courses or um, uh, um, uh, representations of global history, Eastern Europe is is, uh, is the story that falls out the fastest, as we're kind of interested in integrating Latin America, uh, Asia, uh, and uh, South America. So that's one in which it's a call to... Um, to um, remember just the kind of power and presence of these Eastern European networks and the kind of uh, world-making uh, of how these Eastern Europeans were doing this time in the name of, uh, of social solidarity, which uh, may seem for kind of younger generation a very, very long time ago, but still have very, very important effects um, and uh, residues all over Asian Africa in terms of you know hospitals and in uh, Nicaragua, as as James was saying, uh, you know, coffee factories in Vietnam and a range of different other ways, public health facilities uh, across North Africa. Um, So the legacy is certainly there. And I think it's uh, at this stage um, an open uh, game for historians to recover it because it does, I think, if if taken seriously, um, address a range of issues and gives us a very, very different view of of, uh, not just the post-45 period, but the 20th century in general.
2: I think it makes sense that you see younger historians from the region examining Eastern Europe from this perspective because they're able to break away from that Cold War frame, right? I think it takes actually maybe a, a generation or maybe a decade, half a generation, for, for individuals to kind of break out of that frame. It's, it's a long process. And and if you think of it also maybe in the context of the demonization of communism within these societies more generally by political elites, it's also a way to kind of say, well, wait. Why is this continuing to be a part of the narrative? The story is much more diverse and complex. And, and what is this story, right? From some of my conversations with scholars, I, I've kind of gotten that sense.
1: Now, I, th- I think in many ways, the project has a kind of revived relevance today in the sense that in the decades immediately after the collapse of communism, I mean, it seemed that the region was um, heading westwards that europeanization was the name of the game and this was a kind of a, a kind of lost history a lost world without much relevance to the present but i think increasingly in the 2000s and certainly in the 2010s the idea that the region is naturally westernizing um, has been put uh, under question i mean of course this happened i, mean, I guess first in um in russia under under vladimir putin and starting to develop you know anti-western alliances often drawing on older um relationships of this era of socialist internationalism i'm thinking of places like venezuela i um, supporting um operations in the donbass and crimea from 2014 for example but you know in in the other countries of Eastern Europe, so, you know, in Poland and Hungary, where we've had the emergence of, um, you know, powerful populist movements, um, these have also been very critical of um, of, of, of the West, um, increasing que- question Western developmental models, particularly after the 2008 um, financial crisis. And, you know, in some cases have started to rediscover these relationships, too. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the relationship um between um, Hungary uh, and Central Asia and indeed China um, as well so these are these are happening under very different ideological conditions but they do return us to a history history of Eastern Europe as a space um, in between um, as a space where being um, part of Europe as a periphery of Europe sometimes critical of the West sometimes positioning itself in between, um, is an important is an important story once again. so I think our book also um, attempts to place Eastern Europe in that longer term um, in that longer term history of in-betweenness.
2: yeah, thank you for that. I was thinking about the emergence of populism and how you have leaders now looking eastward rather than westward and how uh, again globalization is, or these global alliances are being mobilized, but for different purposes, uh, not necessarily beneficial for the populations which they represent, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much, Paul and James, for taking the time to speak with me today. It was a pleasure, and I wish you uh, the best of luck uh, on your current projects.
1: Thank you very much.